Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 19th of May. It is episode 163. I think I forgot to check, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, people with their phones right now will be able to check whether or not I'm correct. But we do have a big said, show coming up. I think you said one too many last week. Yeah, sorry. So, I've tried to overcorrect, but uh, yeah. who knows the mental gymnastics I've taken. Don't. But we, to get things underway, we do have a good show for you guys coming up. We're going to be talking oh, yeah. to IPA Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. He put in a Freedom of Information request into the ABC. Uh, people might remember the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. If you don't, we get into that in the interview. But the stuff that comes out of that Freedom of Information request... Delightful stuff. We talk uh, the advisory panel. We talk out of Buttrose's leadership. We talk reply all email threads and why they're the worst thing in the world. It's fantastic. It is really good. We unfortunately, I just realized, forgot to call Evan his nickname, which is The Undertaker, which we gave him specifically, specifically for these FOR requests. So sorry, Evan, and sorry, listeners. But yeah, The Undertaker was had a big week. And we're also going to be talking to Richard Impiambardo, who is one of the stars of the IPA's new We Want to Work video. So if you haven't had the chance to check that out, it's on all of our social media accounts. We're going to be talking to Richard about his experiences, like his lived experience, uh, which is, you know, what people talk about these days, lived experience about being in the economic lockdown, what he thinks, like talking to clients about the changing of, you know, public sentiment towards we need a lockdown to keep people safe. And now it's like, okay, well, we need to get back to work. Um unfreezing the economy whether or not that's viable very interesting chat very interesting guy uh yeah loaded show Pete. Uh, i've got a, a uh topic without notice for you okay it's a bit of a story time if you will indulge yeah sure i'm really i'm interested so sunday night hanging out with my parents and we're just talking and i bring up the fact that i really want a painting of myself but i'm napoleon leading his troops into battle in that rearing horse you know that famous painting no, I don't, but I can, I'm can. i imagining, imagining right, it. So I, I'm pretty sure everyone knows kind of the idea of what I'm going for here. The last thing I did before we recorded the show was check Facebook. The number one suggested ad is uh, a company that paints paintings of you, but you're a royal. <laughs> so after this show ends, I'm taking my phone to the nearest river and I'm throwing it in there. These things are listening to you at all times. I haven't even downloaded COVID safe and that's what they're doing with my data. I don't see everyone's like, oh, my phone's listening to me, but it's like, you know, so what? That's convenient. Now you can buy the painting you were talking about. No, no, they don't get my business. You don't get them my business through scurrilous ways of like tapping in on my conversation with my parents. Yeah, I don't just know. Stick to the Google algorithm like everyone else. I think you're now more likely to do it than if you had have just, you know, had have just been this thought bubble that you <laughs> kept bringing no. out. Not with them, that's for sure. Anyway, we are a political show and we should talk politics. Uh, yeah. So, Pete, let's talk uh, the latest with China and the inquiry and all that that's going on, because there's a lot. Well, James, we won. That's all you need to know. We won. Right, Australia moving on. A- so, next up, we got... <laughs> no, you can't stand up to China. China, you know, we've got to respect that we can't hurt their feelings. Well, Australia is a small country compared to China. And we stood up to them and we got our inquiry. 120 countries backed it. Overnight, China agreed to it. Um, you know, uh, that, yeah, so that's the main thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, like, so, so the, yeah, the World Health Organization inquiry is going to be overnight. Unfortunately, China also hit our barley industry overnight with an 80% tariff. Uh, and they said it's because we've been dumping barley on their market, which is obviously completely unsubstantiated. It's because uh, of the, the inquiry, uh, which we won. So that's why they're giving us this tariff. And, and and James Patterson we had on last week, who said it's completely unfair for these people to be punished for China. But what's the alternative? If he has to be quiet because they're going to punish our private enterprise, then that means China controls our political system. So uh, deeply unfair for those people. But I think that's the only alternative. I am slightly more pessimistic than you on the fact that we won because I know China has accepted the inquiry, but they're like the grounds are that it's done by the World Health Organization, which is kind of like Mr. Burns accepting a inquiry into the nuclear power plant as long as it's run by Smithers. Like I don't know if we're going to really get the full scope that we hoped for when we wanted an independent inquiry. There's certainly a lot of water to go under the bridge in terms of actually making sure this inquiry is effective and does what it's meant to do and like china can just lie to it anyway you know there's no real way to stop them but i think it's more from the perspective of it started off being like how could you possibly call for an inquiry that's so unreasonable to now everyone including julia gillard saying yeah no it's okay if there's an inquiry and the latest talking point is we can have an inquiry but it can't apportion blame it's like i'm not sure what an inquiry is for if it's not <laughs> at least in part 
working out who's fault found, Yeah, our inquiry found that coronavirus happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, yeah. I mean, Sorry, that's can I what... add one more voice to the people? Uh, just to show what a common sense thing this is. Uh, this is Craig Emerson saying, I mean, it's kind of serious that we don't know, do we don't want to know how the coronavirus got started and got spread. It is not anti-China. It is pro-science so that we learn about this particular virus and so on and so forth. Now, when the No Way Allah Wipeout guy is the voice of reason in the room, get on mm. board. All right, You yeah. don't want to be the guy that's crazier than the No Way Allah Wipeout video. Well, Craig Emerson, you know, he was he's right about this. And and you know, like I, this is the thing we were talking about. You know, we can't we can't challenge those people because they'll punish us. But we did, and it was the right thing to do. So that was great. I take it as a I take it as a victory. And um, yeah, but you sorry. are correct that it has to. You go. Yeah. Well, last I checked, the barley tariffs are still in there. So if they, are, they got, they yeah, got whacked on overnight. Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's like China goes, okay, we have the inquiry, but we're still being punished for being the first voice in the room. And you mm. just, like, in a weird way, you kind of hope that it just stops at barley because if it's other industries and other mining, then the job losses are going to really hurt. So it's just, it, it's still a tough situation. There's a lot to play out. It is, it is, that's true. And I think, so I did make, want to make one more point. So 120 pe- countries followed us and people are always like, you know, we want Australia to take leadership on global issues, James. Well, mm. this is leadership on a global issue, so let's you know let's be happy about that. Yes, uh, but people that think that Australia should bring in a carbon tax so the rest of the world will catch up, uh, don't read this story. Stay away from yeah, the story. That's right. So, not that one. The other China one, good. Carbon tax, bad. Uh, yeah. All right. So moving closer to home, we've got some more restrictions uh, being eased that we need to run through. I think we're running through Queensland borders and uh, Victoria talking about pubs and clubs. I'll start with Victoria because yeah, yeah we are in Victoria. And pubs, if there's pubs, one mate. thing our Queensland and New South Wales listeners have let us know, it's that they love the amount of Victoria chat that goes on in here. So let's keep going with that. Uh, so from... June 1st in Victoria, 20 patrons at a time will be allowed to eat in enclosed spaces. Now, at the moment, uh, you're not allowed to sit down and have a meal, so we're kind of skipping that 10-person maximum, and we're going straight to 20. And then the uh, they brought in, like, it's going to be 50 from June 22, and then middle of July, it's going to be 100 people. And it's one of those ones where, you know, it, it's really good to have a plan out, like you want to know, okay, this is the date that this is happening, rather than oh, this indefinite time frame of the restrictions. So now that we got a time, it's better. But there are businesses that aren't going to, ma- as we talk about with uh, Richard later in the show, there are businesses that aren't, they simply aren't going to make it to that June one. And if the Daniel Andrews government would just listen to the health advice and allow ten people now, it just gives them that extra step that might make it to June one when they can have twenty. That's right. I mean, it is sort of when we've got less cases than New South Wales and. They had pubs open much earlier than us, and you think, why? There's there's literally no reason for this extra delay. And unfortunately, in that time frame, since New South Wales opened them and since we opened them, some businesses fall off the cliff. So it is disappointing. I do like your point about that. It's good to have a plan. That's uh, that's you know that does give people certainty and and gives people more confidence in the future. Uh, and it's just another one of those things of where you're like, why do I care who's prime minister? Australians are learning about federalism. Uh, it's like they're doing year 11. Last week they learned that you know unemployment rate is, doesn't really matter that much. It's what all these other rates mean as well. That was year 11 economics. Now it's year 11 politics, which is you know federalism. <laughs> You've kind of lost me on that one, Pete. I'm going to need you to unpack that. <laughs> so what's happening is there's all these things. Australia's learning about Australians are learning about their political system. You know yeah. the unemployment rate is what we hold up as really important economic indicator. But last week it wasn't that bad, and then everyone learned. That heaps of people have learnt the labor, left the labor force and unemployment. Oh yeah, like underemployment, people. right? And that is what you get taught in Year Eleven economics and in Year Eleven. Not what politics. I got taught in Year Eleven economics. <laughs> Did you? I don't know. Year Did you go politics. to the school for the gifted? And if so, what <laughs> happened? And in Year Eleven, you learn about federalism and the states' powers and all that stuff, and and that's what people have also learnt. So that's what everyone's going through that at the moment. Right. Okay. I think that's a bit <laughs> sneery. Of like, what do you mean? It's not. I sneery. don't know. <laughs> Just looking down at the Australian public as year 11 politics students. Well, I'm a bit arrogant, have... Peter. I don't I think... I know we're not all as smart as you. I know <laughs> we're not all as smart as you. And you need a nah. big pat on the back for being so smart. There's like... This is not being patronising, but I think like... Isn't it like 20% of people don't know who the Prime Minister is? Like, you know... <laughs> I don't know if it's 20. I'm going to Google uh, that right now. You keep going. 
Look, I only just found out that 5G didn't start coronavirus, so I'm still a bit behind on everyone else. Uh, now, I'll go to Queensland opening board as well, Pete, uh, tries to prove himself right. So, uh, that's been the latest sort of battleground on business versus state governments is uh, a lot of states still won't open their borders, like they're opening the cafes but not opening the borders. Now... A few facts here, some of which absolutely blew me away. So Australia's $80 billion domestic tourism industry, not, like that didn't blow me away. I assume tourism's a lot of money. Uh, but here are some stats about what these border closures mean. So last year, 2.2 million interstate overnight visitors traveled to Queensland in winter months, spending more than $1.5 billion. Now, does that mean that they were there for one day? I must admit, I was Googling for the first part of that question. That's fair enough. And then Victoria and West Australia also had 515,000 overnight visitors from interstate Correct. in this uh, in September quarter last year. I was saying, does overnight mean that they were there for one night? At least one night. Yeah, that, which is wild. Like, that is so many people. And we're, if we're definitely not going to get international tourism because of all the borders closed around the world, like, we certainly need to protect that 2.2 million to Queensland and 515,000 Western Australia. Uh and that, yeah, that's just the latest battleground. Now, uh, the Queensland Chief Health of Chief Health Officer has thrown her support behind the decision to keep states' borders closed, saying coronavirus may never be eradicated. Now, here's the quote. Dr. Young goes, It's unlikely that we will ever beat this virus. We'll have to find ways of managing it. Uh, the be- And I just go, best ways of managing it isn't destroying the economy and never allowing people into Queensland again. Like, that, that seems like a bad way of managing it. Yeah, and it's also not her call as a health person to be making calls on the economy. But you remember who Jeanette Young is, don't you, James? Yeah, <laughs> she like this. Yeah, is this like a message sending, or is this to keep people healthy? Exactly the right. So, so for those who don't know, Jeanette Young, we featured last week on the podcast. She's the Chief Health Officer of Queensland, who closed schools knowing that it would make no difference, but because she wanted to send a message to the community about how serious the threat of coronavirus was. Now, so this is one of those experts versus experts thing we get told so often on our side of politics to listen to the experts, James. Well, the experts, the federal experts say that there's absolutely no nothing wrong with opening state borders and it won't make it any difference in the world. The fellow's name is Paul Kelly, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, uh, Officer in the federal government, says it doesn't make sense. So there's not just one expert that we all have to listen to. Experts disagree. And uh, that's my point. <laughs> I'm liking the federal health experts getting a bit more out there in the media about what should be happening. Like, Brendan Murphy was like, schools should be uh, in class. Uh, Paul Kelly saying open state borders. They're they're puffing out the chest a little bit. They're letting people know, you know, what should be happening. I think they're sort of like, you know, I think on on an international level, they'd be getting a little bit of a pat on the back because Australia's only had about 100 deaths from coronavirus. So they're probably getting a little bit of like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. This is, you know, this is a big (laughs) big career moment for them that they've managed to do this. So they're probably throwing the weight around a bit. Now, Pete, were you able um, yeah. to find out whether 20% of Australians don't know who the good, Prime Minister is? Good question, because I had completely forgotten that I Googled that. <laughs> but to, I couldn't find that figure. What I could find was that 24% of people thought that our head of state was the Prime Minister, which is not true. So, And would you like to uh, say to Australians that they're not as smart as you? Which is kind of the vibe I'm getting here. It's not that at all, James. What I'm saying is, <laughs> is that political... This is some juicy mental gymnastics right now. <laughs> I was saying... That, you know, Australia's political system, not everyone does year 11 politics, mate. People do, you know, (laughs) art, music. I'm sorry if I just have more faith in people than you do. Anyway, let's move on to heroes and villains if we can. Do you really think, (laughs) do you really think that Australia, most Australians understand the difference between the unemployment rate and the underemployment rate? I think they're smarter than we give them credit for. Now, I think that's true, actually. There we go. There we go. All right, heroes and villains. Pete, uh, these are the grunt the pig freedom snorts, the people that have stood up for liberty and freedom around the world. Pete, who is your hero of the week? My hero for the week is uh, the Hong Kong protesters. There was a piece in The Atlantic last week by Zainab Tufeki, and I apologise if I've mispronounced your name, Zainab. Uh, he's an associate professor at University of North Carolina. He had a piece in The Atlantic about how the, the Hong Kong response to coronavirus. Now, they've had way, they've only had four deaths in like the last few months, according to this article in Hong Kong and their transmission rate they can't actually calculate anymore because they're not having enough new cases to be able to calculate a transmission rate so they've done really well and you'd think they'd get smashed because uh, they're so close to China they've got direct rail and aeroplane routes to Wuhan and apparently 2.5 million Chinese people visited Hong Kong in January so you'd think they'd get, they'd get smashed by this but they haven't 
In addition, their government was really slow to close the border because they're effectively controlled by the Chinese. They said stuff like, you know, you don't need to wear a mask. They said it's not that bad. We're not going to close the border. In fact, I don't think they ever closed the border. So the government didn't do anything. Um, but they've managed to create this situation because of the Hong Kong protesters. So they had, because they've got all these websites to tell people where, um, like, police blocks are, so police blockades and things like that, they were able to use that software to tell people where there were outbreaks of coronavirus and where, you know, waiting times for hospitals and where you could get a mask and things like that. And they all started wearing masks, even though Carrie Lam, the head of Hong Kong, said they didn't have to wear masks and banned public servants from wearing masks. So it's actually illegal for some public servants to wear a mask in Hong Kong. But all the people wore one as an act of civil defiance and as a result, they've had a great outcome. Also spreading hand sanitizer to poor uni- poor neighbourhoods, uh, organised groups to give out masks in poor neighbourhoods, help take away stores. Uh, essentially, what I'm telling you, James, is this is a people's response to this thing that we were told could only be sold by government. Um, and it's a fantastic thing. And it's also basically to sort of stick it to what is effectively a Chinese regime just about. Uh, and, and that's great as well. Yeah, if, uh, if there was one thing that was going to come from Carrie Lam saying it's illegal to wear masks, it was the fact that everyone was going to start wearing masks. And I just like the idea that that's the act of civil disobedience in uh, Hong Kong as opposed to America where it's like, you know, I'm brave, I'm not wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, different strokes, different blokes, James. But they, and they also <laughs> came out straight away... <laughs> And said, "That's really uh, deep, man. It's really deep." Yeah, yeah. That's no, a crazy old word, world. But they they said to you know, um, they questioned. They were onto the World Health Organization. World Health Organization was like, "No masks necessary," and they were like, "No, nah, we do need masks." And they were right. So this is you know this thing we're meant to listen to ex- experts. Listen to the people, man. <laughs> there we go. All right. Um, except the people that Pete looks down on. Uh, anyway, uh, my hero this week is going to be Tim Smith, Liberal MP over in Victoria. More Victoria chat for you. But the thing is, like, there's so many parliaments that are closed around Australia, like state par- parliaments, federal parliaments, are, like now back, but there's so few reduced people. And you just think, like, I think we've talked about this on the show a few times, but this is one of the key moments in Australian history. I hope this is the most uh, existential threat I ever lived through. And if there's ever a time for Parliament to be sitting, it's right now. Like, Parliament sat through Spanish flu, Parliament sits through World War II, but coronavirus shuts down Parliament. So, Tim Smith, a opposition member of, in Victoria state level, he has taken to opposing, but he's using Twitter, and he's using it better than anyone else in the country, in my opinion. Uh, he's, like, pushing back against Dan Andrews, who's going against health advice on cafes. He's talking to cafe owners, stuff like that. And it's just good to see that there's actual political scrutiny on some of the decisions being made from other politicians. That's exactly right. We, we have sort of mentioned a little bit, but probably haven't gone into it enough, is that how it's probably unnecessary to be closing down parliaments. So that was good for you to raise that. Have you got like a sample of some of these tweets he's been dishing out? Well, one of them, when he like interviewed a cafe owner, just saying like, you can actually fit 10 people in here and you would like to, and the cafe owner going like, yes, I would, uh, just strikes me as like, how is that not an official ad and the only thing the Victorian parliament did for like a week? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And he did a poll. He did a poll. So he started calling Dan Andrews. Chairman yeah, Chairman Dan. Dan versus Dictator Dan. Yeah, so, you know, once again, Which- interested in democracy. Um, so, yeah, no, he's been very vocal. And even so, and, and, you know, obviously we're sort of interested in politics, but people outside the political bubble have also got around this a little bit. My brother, who's not that political, said to me, oh, have you seen, uh, what's his name? Tim Smith. Tim on- Smith. Tim Smith on Twitter, he's been going crazy. And my brother, you know, he's only got 4,000 Twitter followers, Tim Smith. Uh, my brother would not have known who he was prior to that, prior to this, really. Nah, absolutely not. Uh, all right, let's go over to Villains, which is, you know, the antonym of our Grunt the Pig Freedom Snout. We need to figure out a sound effect for the villain, but... Uh, well, I've got the sound effect. The oh, yeah, the of course. Come on, <laughs> I think I've just blocked it from my mind. I hate it so much. <laughs> we talk about it every week. Anyway, it's the fake, Extinction <laughs> Rebellion fake nudie run. Extinction Rebellion did a nudie run, of course, to save the planet, but they didn't get completely nude, which, to my mind, defeats the purpose. Saul, or Steve, actually, this week, roll the tape, mate. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Now, James, hit us with your villain. All right, so there's that old quote, I think it's like a Churchill one, never let a good crisis go to waste, and that is one thing that the uh, German parliament certainly has not done. So 
you know, everyone's talking about coronavirus. Everyone's like looking over what the left hand, and then you can do whatever you want to do with the right hand. And what the Germans have decided to do with the right hand is to make it illegal to burn the EU flag in Germany. Uh, so Germany's made public burning of the EU flag or that of another country punishable by up to three years in jail. Uh, it's equi- uh, the same applies to the EU anthem. So you can't defile the EU anthem. I don't know how you do it. By the way, the EU anthem is Beethoven's Ode to Joy theme. Oh, you can't. You can do a bit better that. than that. You can do a bit better than that. I like Ode to Joy. Yeah, but I'm just I'm saying, like, you know, just you can do a bit more. Like, sample it, maybe bring it to another place, uh, do a remix of it, but ripping it off is just nothing. Yeah. But and anyway. don't, take a, don't take a cultural artifact of the place you're trying to destroy and make it your. Anthem. I think that's just the EU's modus operandi. I think that's just <laughs> what they want to do. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's the thing. Like that is completely antithetical to free speech to make it that you can't burn the EU flag. Uh, that- oh wait, so here's a quote from Justice Minister uh, Christine Lambrecht. Uh, burning flags publicly has nothing to do with peaceful protest. Uh, she said it stoked up quite hang- uh, hatred, anger, and aggression, and hurt many people's feelings. Oh come on. Protests like, always hurt people's feelings. It's yeah, I think that's that's why they're there. But also, like a burning of a flag, uh, Christine saying it has nothing to do with peaceful protests. Case by case basis, surely. Yeah, exactly. There's plenty of peaceful protests where that has happened. Oh, hurt feelings. Like I, when people say let's raise taxes, that hurts my feelings. Mm. You know. So why isn't that illegal? Maybe it should be. Maybe we should make it illegal to t- raise taxes. Anyway. <laughs> When, well, let, let's not let a good crisis go to waste ourselves. Let's we've push got for that. Here. Now, that's extraordinary. Right. And has, was there was there anything in particular that they was there some incident that they did that in regards to, or if they just stuck? It didn't seem to be from what I was reading. I don't know if you saw anything, but it just seemed to be. Uh, let's get this done while everyone's thinking about Corona. There you go. Well, well. All right, uh, my Pete, villain. Your villain. Yeah. So, my villain is union. The unions of Australia and the Greens pushing for a pay rise. Or an increase in the media uh, in the what's it called minimum wage? Uh, the unions want to increase the minimum wage by thirty bucks a week, and the Greens want to make it sixty percent of the median wage. Now it's already uh, over nineteen dollars and the highest medium uh, minimum wage in the world. James, the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia, Peter Strong, which is a good name for someone standing up for small business, said if there's a push for a pay increase, the message from the unions is they don't want to have jobs if they go. Look the word crisis up in the dictionary, they'll learn something. So I like a bit of a look it up in the dictionary, mate, sledge. Um, so that was good from Peter Strong, but of course he's right. Um, you know, we need <laughs> 75% of the country is employed by the government at the moment. If we increase the minimum wage, that's going to make things worse. All right, people get unemployed when you increase the minimum wage. There's been studies out of America with different parameters, of course, but they showed that in some parts of America, if you increase the minimum wage from $15 to $16, 10% of the people get unemployed and 90% of people are better off. So it's we know that most people, when they're on the minimum wage, don't stay on the minimum wage forever. They just stay there sh- for a little short period of time and then they move on to other work. The important thing is to get on the ladder in the first place, James. And if you push people out of those low-paying jobs, they may never get back on the ladder. And the final thing I need to say about this, James, before you can jump in is that we... Uh, most people on the minimum wage aren't poor. Like over 80% of the people on minimum wage are just you know, kids from middle-class families working at Maccas. So it's not like, you know, this this idea of the single mum struggling away that we need to help is not completely untrue, but a bit of a myth. Uh, that was a very informative piece. So I'm not going to besmirch you by saying that it's a year 11 economics lesson, but that is it for the start of the show. We'll now go to our interviews. Uh, Tufa, oh, Pete's got something to say. They should be teaching that in year 11 economics. One of the problems is that they, they don't teach stuff like this. They teach Keynesian stuff in year 11 economics, so... I'm glad you're uh, here, James. Yeah, looking forward comes out on Wednesday. We'll now go to our interviews with uh, Evan and... Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, yeah, let's go to our interviews now. Okay, we now welcome on to the show, great friend of the show and Director of Communications here at the IPA, Evan Mulholland. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, now we wanted to bring you on because your most recent Freedom of Information request has yielded some delicious results and we want to talk through them. So why don't you tell us the whole story starting at Barbara Hagen's email to set up the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. Yeah, so this all got uncovered in the Australian late last year where one staff member who happened to be a producer for one of the radio shows, like not very senior, sent a uh, reply all email to the entire organisation 
pitching the idea of a climate crisis advisory group where they would bring together a brains trust of the organization together to work on what they call solutions-based journalism. And so you had literally like dozens of replies on, this was a Sunday morning she sent this. So they had dozens of replies throughout the day, reply all emails, uh, uh, replying with glee and enthusiasm at this idea. Uh, they thought it was terrific. Some thought it was great. Um, some gave personal experiences of what happened. Um, so after this all, the next day, this all got leaked into the Australian and I thought, um, they've only got the reply all emails. I reckon I should FOI this Barbara Hagen for the emails that replied just to her as well, uh, which were also pretty delicious. Uh, but it also has uh, uncovered some, some truths going on here, which is that a lot of the ABC journalists are just completely one-sided on climate change and bias. What's the story with Barbara Hagen? So she wanted a climate crisis advisory group. Did she Was she sort of thinking that the ABC is not already a climate change activist media organisation? Did she? So she really thought they weren't doing enough. Is that the gist of it? Uh, and as Chris Kenny says in The Australian today, uh, many employees replied giving the impression that the ABC doesn't do enough on climate change, uh, which is completely ridiculous. One of their most senior editorial directors, Craig McMurtry, actually says in a reply that it is unclear to many staff why they wouldn't follow a Guardian-style uh, advocacy role on the issue of climate change, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's a taxpayer-funded organisation that has a charter to be balanced. Um, and you, you wonder why, it's no wonder why the ABC completely misses uh, debates such, such as the cost of climate change policies, which was a major debate leading up to the last year's federal election. Uh, it, when you've got staff uh, sending ridiculous replies, as, we, as we've seen. There's one more thing I just want to get uh, a hold of before we get into what this means for the ABC. So Barbara Hagen sends around this email. A lot of people start replying back. But the other important thing is that Ida Butros, who's uh, you know chair of the ABC, she says, we're not doing this. This isn't happening. But the FOI found that the group is still holding meetings as of January. Yep. Um, so a week after Ida Butros ruled it out, she ruled it out after it got made into a big thing in the Australian, she ruled it out. And then a week later, uh, staff members anonymously briefed to The Guardian, which is like an internal newsletter at the ABC, uh, that uh, the group's still going. They've got 77 members. But as these FOI uh, documents detail, they, they were planning uh, meetings for as, as recent as January. Um, and some of the replies, I've got to say, are verge on ridiculous. Uh, there's one uh, staff member in Brisbane that goes around stealing remotes to the TVs so they can turn all the TVs off. Uh, and there's another that, uh, well, many bemoan the lack of solar panels in the South Bank Melbourne studio. And one uh, states that uh, she's lobbied several times that the ABC charge a lot extra for people that don't use heat cups at the staff cafe. So two colleagues I wouldn't want being my colleagues are those two narcs. Sorry, can I just seize on one of those? That is the TV remote thief. Like when I read it, I only saw that they just turned off the TV. I didn't know that they then subsequently took the remote away so someone would have to ask for it back. Yeah, they went around taking oh, remotes so no. they, could, they could control when the TVs get turned off. Um, and uh, uh, funnily enough, one person also discusses how, you know, the the electricity usage in the Hobart studio and the amount of uh, lights that get kept on and TVs that get, get kept on. Um, Tasmania is like 90% renewable energy, uh, most of it by hydro. So like, I don't know why they're complaining about having lights on and power on. So Evan, uh, I wanted to ask you, what is this advocacy Germany, uh, journalism that The Guardian undertake just for those who aren't familiar with what that is yeah so guardian is a private media outlet and i have no issue with the guardian taking an, an advocacy role to their issues it is their right as a private media organization to do that where i do take exception is uh, abc staff who hold similar opinions to those at the guardian uh disobeying what's laid out in their charter and taking an advocacy role to what they're uh, meant to do, which is being partial. It being partial journalists because they are funded by the taxpayer. And it appears that many in the ABC don't think they're doing enough on climate change, which is just 
ridiculous. And many at the ABC think it's their role to be involved, not just report on the debate, but be involved in a debate. And no wonder why they completely missed the issues uh, facing coal workers in Queensland. They basically cheered on Bob Brown's convoy uh, until they saw the photos of uh, of some uh, towns like Claremont in uh, north and central Queensland. And then they reported about how, uh, you know, some of the publicans and, and locals intimidated several people on that convoy. So it is no wonder they are, they are completely out of touch and some of the responses just verge on ridiculous. Let's talk about the solutions-based journalism aspect of it because solutions-based journalism on like in its own vacuum, I'm like, sounds great. Like I love journalists trying to find solutions to problems and pressure governments. But uh, were any of the solutions that you saw in your freedom of information requests about climate change, stuff like climate adaption or moving towards nuclear power, or was it all, uh, you know, does, did anyone happen to go against what Barbara Hagen outlined in the original email? Uh, no, none of them mentioned nuclear energy. Uh, none of them mentioned, you know, uh, the technological advances with gas. Uh, they all mentioned uh, wind and solar and the use of wind and solar uh, by the ABC, but how they can advocate those technologies. Uh, that's what appears to be solutions-based journalism. Journalism, journalism is a search for the truth, but what solutions-based journalism uh, seems to be is starting with an endpoint and then working back from there that's not journalism that's activism so evan um did anyone suggest abc employees taking a pay cut and contributing that pay cut to renewable energy generation because that seems like a really practical way for me to solve this problem that is a very practical idea and given uh the enormous salaries some staff members at the abc are on uh wouldn't be a bad idea for them to put the money where their mouth is but i think you know 74% of people want those over 150,000 to take a a 20% pay cut. That should also include people at the ABC. We're seeing the private media shared jobs left, right and centre. Yet the ABC... 10 Daily went down 10 Daily went down today, BuzzFeed last week. But uh, ABC is still funding their lifestyle site, uh, ABC Life, uh, which basically has eaten up all these other left-wing clickbait sites for its own taxpayer-funded version which is just completely ridiculous. Um, when, when are the left-wing media in particular going to stand up at, at, at the ABC's encroachment into all these different spaces? But most of all, I think what the, these FOIs show is that it's time for a serious and sober debate post-coronavirus about privatising the ABC. If these ABC staff want to be activists, want to play an activist role, then they should do that uh, with the ABC standing on its own two feet. If the ABC is good as its staff say it is, then then have it, literally have it. Uh, Stop the taxpayers giving it $1.1 billion a year. And if there is an audience out there for this stuff, they will pay for it. Yeah, it's like uh, my position is, you know, we're laughing at Barbara Hagen right now because it's exceptionally easy to do so. But I genuinely don't have a problem with her, like, getting out there and wanting to do journalism about climate change if she was working for literally any other publication in Australia except the SBS, obviously. It's when public funding comes into it and she's supposed to be objective and reporting for all Australians, that's when the thing falls apart. Uh, There are two emails I want to highlight that I did actually like in this thread. We're laughing at a lot of the emails. One, uh, the name was redacted, but it was, colleagues, could you please use reply rather than reply all? Thank you and my apologies for the reply of all. And then Gavin Morris, who's director of the news, replies to that, for the love of God, thank you now is there anything worse those two emails they're fine with me is there anything worse in corporate life than getting on court on a reply all email thread it is the absolute worst and i used to work in uh parliament house and there would be occasions where uh uh, some you know dope staffer has put in uh the group email into the cc thread instead of bcc and you're getting all these reply backs about you know parliamentary friends of the un or something uh, which is just insufferable. And then you get just as many people saying, stop replying all. And that appears to be what's happened here. And the funniest are some of the replies saying, please don't uh, litter people's inboxes in stuff that's not relevant to our work. But I think the gold medal goes to the guy that said, uh, it, don't we do enough on climate change already? Um, so there is one person at the ABC that thinks correctly. And now that these are published, I doubt that he'll be there very long. 
Yeah, probably listening to this podcast, so shout out to that guy. So quick story time, and I'm sorry to interrupt your question, Pete. Uh, when I, 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 I've said on the show, like I started the IPA working two days a week, and Rob Fayer, uh, sorry, Rob, who was working there, sent an email to the entire staff, and I accidentally replied all saying, thanks for the update, you big idiot. And- <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, this is like very early days. The best part was no one even registered that it was a mistake. That was just apparently the reputation I had at the time. <laughs> so how it was big idiot. That's what you called him. Yeah, I called him a big idiot. That could have <laughs> been a lot all. worse. That could have been a lot worse. Uh, there you go. Yeah, that's just an insight into you know a young James Bolt's sloppiness. He's not like uh, that now. He's, he's that's still like- that's still something that will probably happen again. Like I'm not saying that that part of my life is behind me just yet. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. I wanted to just, unfortunately, take this in a serious direction one more time, and that's Evan. Can you please... Now, we should have mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the poll, we were talking about the ABC being out of touch. The RPA did a survey or a poll back in... or commissioned a poll back in Feb about the ABC uh, and how third, only a third of Australians thought that they represented their views. Why don't you talk the viewers through that one? Yeah, so we, we polled people on their thoughts on the ABC, and only 32% thought the ABC represented their views, um, yet 100% of taxpayers are forced to fund it. So I think that really says something stark in that, you know, a lot of media companies have gone towards slants of various ideologies because that's where the market is. Um, But that's not the charter of the ABC. That's not what the ABC is for. If it wants to be uh, the go-to left-wing news site, then it should not be funded by taxpayers. And once again, it is time for a serious debate about privatising the ABC when we're going to have rack up a trillion dollars worth of debt. Can we keep affording to pay $1.1 billion a year to an organisation that is so clearly biased and out of touch with mainstream Australians? Uh, I got one more serious thing I want to ask about this, and it might be hard to answer, but when Ida Butros came in, she was sort of like uh, the way that conservative voices would start to get back at the ABC. That was kind of the billing at the time. And then one week in, she sort of extends an olive branch to the left by giving that interview where she says Andrew Bolt would never have a job at the ABC. Does this climate advocacy group and the fact that, you know, she tries to shut it down, but they're still talking and they're still trying to have meetings sort of show that there's still that friction and the ABC doesn't exactly want to be led back to objectivity? Well, there clearly is. She said that... um you know, it's an idea that's not going to happen, the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, uh, because she, the managing director and the management team, uh, thought so. And this is staff clearly uh, not abiding by the uh, views of their management. Um, now, people say a lot that the ABC is run by a staff collective, a workers' collective. This proves them absolutely right that it is run by a staff collective collective because they won't even listen to their bosses about how this team, uh, this advisory group is going to work. And they're they're apparently still going. They they break to the Guardian that they've got 77 members and judging from the email, I guess that's about right. So Evan, what's next with this story? So it's come out now, it's in the Australian with Chris Kenny. We've done some stuff about it. Uh, Are there any follow-ups? Is there any more freedom of information things you can tease? Obviously, you can't go into too many details. Yeah, look, I'm going to keep digging. Um, uh, I'm on Sky News, Kenny on Media tonight uh, or yesterday, whenever this goes to air. Um, But uh, there's a lot of references in there to a Microsoft Teams group that they started. Now, uh, I think that that is FOI-ball and I should have been given those documents. But the It's certainly going to be juicy. Um, now, the ABC actually wrote a news article about how politicians and public servants, uh, all their WhatsApps and Slack conversations are FOIable. That's the Information Commissioner, so that's the big chief of FOI in Australia. Um, and so if Slack is considered FOIable according to the Information Commissioner, then surely Microsoft Teams is as well. Uh, so I've, I've gone back to the ABC and, and, and demanded or asked nicely. Um, that I should have access to all the transcripts of those conversations. I reckon they'll be even juicier because I just find Microsoft Teams is a bit wild, wild west. Like certainly in the correspondence between me and Pete trying to figure out a show, emails are extremely formal. Slack loosens up a bit. But if we get Mm -hmm. into Facebook Messenger or Microsoft Teams, things fall apart very quickly. 
Yeah. Oh, if, I, if I could FOI the IPA, I'd definitely, I'd definitely plug in. <laughs> You'd be it's like, very... how do these two bozos hold down a job? Yeah. <laughs> That's where you find out the truth in uh, Messenger. Nah, so Evan, you're a holiday beard guy. It's looking pretty sick at the moment. Does that mean it's now a locked-in feature? I'm not sure. I'm keeping it around for a while. I did have to get it groomed. Uh, Manhor Melbourne on Little Collins Street. I'll give a plug to them. They're back. My hairdressers are back open. That's the name of the uh, <laughs> hair salon I go to. But um, yeah, no, it's. I don't. I don't know if it's locked in 100%, but definitely keeping it around while we're all in isolation. Oh, I want to go on record. I like it. Thanks, mate. James Bolt, the James Bolt, he likes it. That's the vote. Uh, I got one last question. So stepping away from ABC, stepping away from uh, Evan's manscaping efforts, Pete was on Weekend Live this weekend, and uh, you're our media man, our spin doctor. You take our policy team and you get them ready for media so they can get out into the world of uh, the, well, just into the big wide world. How do you reckon Pete went? What were the streaks and weaknesses? I thought Pete did really well. Uh, the the uh, so on the weekend live, it's the IPA versus the Australia Institute, and the Australia Institute is just so predictable. They're like, oh, there needs to be a bigger role for government in the recovery, and government's going to need to bail everyone out, and this, this, and that. And Pete just completely predicted those moves and smashed them with the argument that we're going to need to grow the economy, going to need to unleash the market and cut red tape and cut taxes. So he was definitely on message, and uh, I thought <laughs> did really well. Yeah, that's right. So I was you got to. Got to pay $176 billion cut red tape burden for Australian business, James. Don't forget It's all that. Josh might want to plug in his uh, sky clip into this. Uh, <laughs> I had my own scouting report on Pete on Weekend Live I want to get into. Uh, I liked it as well. I liked it as well. Uh, it was unnervingly serious, Pete. You were really? just so... Yeah, to extend the metaphor that we built before, it was very much email thread Peter and definitely not the uh, Facebook messenger Peter that the good people listening to this podcast have come to know and love. And uh, also very earnest, the way you put yourself across. Also, again, <laughs> different to the steely resolve of authority, uh, authority that we know so well. That's what you, think- you go. No, how did you think you went? Well, that's interesting. I think I've done a couple of gags on there before and just got absolutely nothing. So I just thought you're telling me you got absolutely nothing on your gags sitting alone in a studio. I know it's weekend live, but it's not like there's a live audience. Yeah, yeah, it's just you sitting there, and I've done a couple of gags, and Danica, the host, has just not laughed. So I haven't bothered with them anymore. Um, My question is, when is when are we going to have James Bolt on Weekend Live? Wow, that's a really good question. Yeah, well, uh, it's only if, if we could talk to our director of communications about it. I wonder if uh, he might have a few ideas. That'd be good. I'd like to say it. Oh, I've been on yeah. Bolt Report a few times. Just wait till uh, Dad runs out of friends to have a whiskey with and I'll get the call up uh, two hours before recording as usual. So, I, I don't know. We'll, we won't be too long. Uh, cool. Evan, uh, check out the Freedom of Information request over on, uh, yeah, Chris Kenny on The Australian. It's also on our website. Check out Evan. Yeah, people will be hearing this on Tuesday. All 301 pages of it are on the website. So, it's a good beautiful. read. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, Ev, thanks so much, mate. Thanks, guys. Okay, we now welcome on to the show one of the stars, one of the stories we featured on the IPA's most recent video, We Want to Work, Richard Impiambato. Welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Now, the We Want to Work video was something the IPA did because we thought there's a lot of people out there getting affected by the economic lockdowns. There's not a whole lot of... uh, you know, seats at the table from small business communities when they talk about the committees to reopen Australia or when they talk about extending lockdowns. And we wanted to start highlighting some of the people that are being affected. And Richard, you were one of the people that uh, was in the video. So why don't you give people that haven't had a chance to watch a video yet, which by the way is on all over the IPA social media accounts, for the people that haven't been able to watch a video yet, how has the economic lockdown affected you? It's, and and thanks for the intro, James. Not only my business, but a lot of the businesses that we deal with. So my business, Moto Property, we sell, lease, manage mainly retail and commercial property as well as industrial and some residential. So when we manage property, a lot of the uh, property that we do manage, it has cafes, restaurants, bars, shops, gymnasiums, travel agents, offices, that sort of thing. So for us, it was not only the decline in our business and what how, uh, how, um, how that it was caused by the lockdown, but also to dealing with other people's stresses in terms of dealing with rental deferrals. So for us, it was the big key day for us was the, um, Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th of March. From that point on, we'd all seen the images out of China and Italy, Iran, 
and all of that with lockdowns over there. But it all became quite real for us about the 13th of March. The day before, you'd seen Morrison and Frydenberg come out with their first stimulus package. So for us then, it was a lot of businesses that we then dealt with went into lockdown and then retail operators were forced into lockdown soon thereafter. So with that came a loss of revenue. So therefore then it's the whole stress of we can't pay our rent. So therefore for them, uh, for us, it was literally dealing with hundreds of landlords and tenants um, in trying to negotiate outcomes for them in terms of how they get through this period. Because as I mentioned in that video last week, when you've got no income, you can't pay rent, you can't pay anything. Great uh, plug of your business there, Richard. I can see why you know you're a successful business uh, operator. Now, you, as you mentioned, obviously deal with a heap of other in, uh, a heap of other businesses apart from your own. Do they yeah. have the same sentiment about the lockdown as you? Like, do they see it as something that's necessary or as something that uh, has has gone too far and has affected them too much? Look, Pete, really good question. So, at the start, and I was certainly one of those when we saw. And I always go back to late January into February. We all saw those video, uh, images on news come out of Wuhan where the whole city was locked up. And everyone thought that there was this dreaded flu-like illness that was going to come and infect a lot of Australians. So therefore, one thing that I've always kept in my phone is a copy of the Sydney Morning Herald front page, uh, I think it was late March, that said it predicted Australia would have between 50 and 150,000 deaths. So me, like a lot of the businesses that I deal with, we were, okay, let's lock down, let's try and flatten the curve, as we all got to know, to you know get on top of this, because none of us wanted to see our hospital systems overwhelmed. And a lot of that did come from fear. As that kept rolling through, and I mentioned that stress stressful period between the 13th of March, mid-March until Easter, where we were negotiating, it was a tsunami of rent relief and deferrals that we had to negotiate. Once we got to Easter and we saw the lowering of infection rates week by week, and it's been continuing since, the sentiment has completely changed where the whole reason we went into lockdown was to not overwhelm doctors, nurses, the hospital system. That's now happened. And you now see the difference in language from the Victorian Premier to other premiers where we've all seen what's happening in the Territory, WA, South Australia. So that's really highlighted and put a lot of anger towards not only the business owners, but people who work for these businesses. The fact that, okay, the reason we went into lockdown was for this reason. We've done that. Now it's time to get back to work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the more popular ideas when the lockdown was introduced was that you can freeze the economy and once the lockdown isn't necessary anymore, then you can unfreeze it and everything goes back to the way things were. The businesses you talk to, is anyone going to be able to unfreeze like a light switch or is it going to be a very long period of time? And I mentioned this in, the, in, in that interview last week as well, this notion that a lot of small business operators have this pot of cash, have quite a lot stored away is quite wrong because to operate a small business in Australia is very, very expensive. And it's one of the things that the IPA very much advocates the cutting of red tape. That will certainly help in that regard. But if you have a look at some of the statistics here, um, Australian small business, so a small business is classified as employing up to or below 19 people. That's, you have over, you've got 2 million and 65 um, small businesses in Australia, which actually employ 97% of Australia's workforce. The pain subsequent to when JobKeeper ends is, in my opinion, going to be quite enormous. So therefore, it's that then domino effect. You've got private investors who typically own strip retail, office buildings, etc., where rent's going to go from here to here. So therefore, then lowering the values, the banking system, it's a massive domino effect here, which is going to be for years ahead of us. Richard, we've talked a little bit about the video. It's been all over social media on the IPA website, uh, etc. Have you received any feedback from your performance in the video so far from friends, some family good. or randoms? Yeah. <laughs> some good and some bad. Look, I'm on Twitter, so most people, oh, no. are, <laughs> yeah, most people who are on Twitter uh, aren't, uh, aren't complimentary of it but yeah look I, I have found it quite complimentary one point that i've really noticed with this is people who are unaffected if 
their income is unaffected, they don't really care. And Adam Crichton has actually written a very, very good article on Today's Australian saying that a lot of people where their income is unaffected, they actually quite enjoy this period. Their commute time's a lot less, they've spent a lot less money. So for them, it's been great. Obviously, people in the um, in the public system, their income is unaffected. And then for me, I had a very lengthy discussion yesterday with a private landlord. He owns a lot of property all across Melbourne. And he actually made the point to me in that, look, for him, he's quite comfortable. And his portfolio of buildings is one that hasn't actually been affected yet. But if he was affected, his opinion of lockdown would be very, very different to the one that he has now in that he feels that we should, I suppose, keep staying in this lockdown. So that's really where it is quite polarising. The people who have had their income tap completely turned off, they want to and have to get back to work. And again, we go back to those ABS stats that came out last week, it was about 72.5% of people in Australia are now either employed by state, federal or local government or are on JobKeeper, JobSeeker. It's completely unsustainable. Yeah, I think that's part of it because like, there's so many people who are saying, uh, look how nice my life is right now. Look at all the hobbies I'm having or like all the bread I'm making or maybe their work has been able to uh, adapt to the fact that they're working from home. Uh, we should do this until we find the cure. But for like, no one's making... If, if we ended lockdown, no one's making them get back to the old ways of doing things. Whereas in a lockdown, the people that are struggling are being made to do things that are causing them to struggle. So, like, people should be given the choice whether or not they want to return back to the old ways of life or not. Mm, absolutely. And, look, I, my parents, if they were to catch it, it would be, you know, terrible for them. My, my in-laws are the same. So people who have, uh, whose immune systems aren't as strong, sure, look, you do have to be very, very careful with it. But for those of us who are a bit younger, who are healthy, I really do not think that we should be affected by these lockdowns. And, you know, I, I, every day I look at the, the stats here, pardon me while I have a look at the, the page here. Um, I have a look at, a lot of us, when we have a look at these COVID stats each day, we actually only look at the total number of cases that have been in Australia, which is still quite low. But if you have a look at the number of active cases nationwide, 569, it's very small, so, so small. In Victoria, we've got how many in Victoria here? 110 cases. Most of that being cedar meats. Zero point like zero point zero zero three percent of the population actively have it at the moment. It's so small. It's the reason for these lockdowns. The lockdowns now, to me, are completely unjustifiable. Richard, don't worry too much about Twitter. You know, we always think at the IPA that for, if you put that. The same thing that was on Twitter that got a lot of flack, if that was in the comment section of The Australian, it would be 200 comments saying how good it was. So don't worry about Twitter. One final question. <laughs> Dan, uh, Dan Andrews is easing restrictions uh, fairly significantly from around June 1. Mm. Um, is it too pessimistic? So that's obviously a good thing. Is it too pessimistic to say, unfortunately, a lot of businesses won't make it that late? And it would, if, if they had been reopened now, uh, they would have survived? Is that, do you reckon that's fair? For a lot of, it depends on the size of the business. It, it, if it, if it was open now compared to say the first of June, and then he's looking talking about later June and then the mid July, and he's put that caveat on there of well, we have to look at the amount of infections. That caveat that he's put on there has put very very little confidence into the sector. Pardon me. <laughs> um, phone going off. So, look up. I made this point earlier, I really do see a lot of pain at the other side of this. I've been quite buoyed by some of the federal government's language in that they are wanting to cut company tax rates after this to really try and stimulate the economy. Without having a crystal ball, I'm I'm quite pessimistic about the pain that's ahead of us, I really am. All right. Uh, well, a bit of a downer note to end it on, but Richard Impimbardo, uh, check, check out We Want to Work on all the IPA social media channels. And uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure, James and Pete. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, we've got a few stories. I think the show is running pretty long, so let's fire through these. But uh, here we go. Give the people what they want. Joe Biden needs to stop telling people not to vote for him. Okay. Tell me Latest- more. 
Sorry, this is the thing we've talked about on the show before. Joe Biden has a habit of going like, whenever he's criticized by someone on a policy point, he'll just go, well, then don't vote for me. Latest being uh, Tara Reid, which we've been talking about on and off on the show. But May 14, Biden is getting interviewed on MSNBC and uh, Tara Reid's allegations come up about the sexual assault in 93. And he says that people who believe Tara Reid, quote, probably shouldn't vote for me. And he should instead, quote, vote their heart. And he added, I wouldn't vote for me if I believe Tara Reid. Now, this is on the back of January 29. Environmental activist Ed Fallon confronted Biden on climate positions. Biden responded, quote, you have to go for vote for someone else. You're not going to vote for me in the primary. November 22, Carlos Rogers. Uh, this is all coming from Politico, who found stuff dating back to 1979. There's at least 10 different accounts of Joe Biden imploring people not to vote for him. Uh, Carlos Rogers, an immigration activist, pressed Biden event in South Carolina on deportations. Uh, Biden goes, quote, you should vote for Trump. Now, when will we recognize that Joe Biden just does not want to be president, but the the uh, people behind him are pushing him too hard and all he can do is just whisper under the table, please get me out of here, don't vote for me. It's a cry for help. He's it's telling a- everyone not to vote for him. Yeah. All right, come on, let's help this guy. <laughs> it's the one thing he wants in the world is for you to vote for literally anyone else. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, he's obviously watched the Chris Bowen school of... Electoral success. If you remember yes. Chris Bowen during the last election, they lost the unlosable election. He said, "Don't." What was that issue again? I can't remember the issue, but he said, don't, uh, don't. "It was franking credits or uh, yeah. reverse mortgages or something like that." Something like that. Yeah. So anyway, that didn't work for them. But look, I—I I mean, or are you about to say something? Yeah, you go. No, 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 you go. Well, I like it. I, I can't mean- wait to be back in the studio so we never do this again. <laughs> I hate the whole. Now nah, you go. I don't mind I'm it. I'm counting down the days. Yeah, yeah. What? What? Yeah, you go, mate. Yeah. Anyway, I'll go. I don't mind it because you know we just want a bit more authenticity out of our politicians, and he recognises that most of the country is not going to vote for him. And I, you know, a bit of honesty. Don't vote for me. I don't care. You're never going to vote for me. I don't care. And the other thing is, as you said, he's done it since 1979. It's obviously worked a bit. Bloke's vice president of the most powerful country in history. Like he, he has got elected a few times with this strategy. Well, if that is actually a strategy, it is going to end up like that famous uh, photo that goes around the internet every now and then, like, quote from man stabbed, what are you going to do, stab me? Like, if you keep telling people, what are you going to do, not vote for me? It's like, yeah, like, that's that's exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, well, look, it might work. It, it, it's so, it's, you can't say it to everyone, it, four times in one election is a lot. We're not even at, we haven't even started the official campaign season yet. Yeah, I think we're going to have a few more of these. All right, uh, Pete, you saw something on Twitter that took uh, took your interest. Yeah, I saw I saw Elon Musk, who we've been talking about a little bit on the show over the last few weeks. He's been pretty active in the world. You know, he took on the government and won with regards to his Tesla factory in California. They said he couldn't open it, but he did anyway. Anyway, he tweeted during the week to his 34 million followers, take the red pill along with a red rose emoji, because apparently there's no red pill emoji, which surely is part of the conspiracy, James. Um, and Ivanka Trump tweeted, uh, taken. Uh, so she retweeted it and uh, tweeted taken. So that was a bit of a story. Now Grimes' mother, who is Grimes' is Musk's Musk's wife, uh, Grimes' mother Sandy Garasino reportedly accused him of blaring men's rights activist Bull S. Bull S. That could uh, be anything. She, that could be anything. And she deleted that tweet. And Matrix co-creator Lily Wachowski, and you'll tell me if I've pronounced that no, wrong. Beauty said, uh, "You made a movie." Uh, that she had a go at it as well, which I thought was a bit rough because, you know, you made a movie about questioning reality and you had this incredible trope in it, this red pill thing. And now that's exactly how people are using it in popular culture. You, you, you started this. Like, what did you expect people to use it for? Anyway. Uh, so there is a like, because, you know, in, fame, in uh, classic Elon Musk fashion, it, it's not entirely clear what he means by the red pill. So I'm going to give yeah. you the choice of three, Pete. Elon Musk... Okay has either come out as Republican, as a men's rights activist, as his uh, stepmother-in-law, sorry, mother-in-law seems to say, or three, we are actually in the Matrix and Elon Musk is the only one that knows. I I don't reckon it's any of them, but I reckon the third is most likely. Yeah, that we are in a simulation. I doubt he's a... uh, Yeah, yeah, we we almost certainly in a simulation. No, I mean, I doubt he's a Republican and he wouldn't be a men's rights activist. Uh, I just think he's a mad genius troll like Kanye like he's just going off his head he doesn't know what he means he just he's just shooting from the hip mate no I think it's like my gun in my head as much as I would love to talk about simulations for the next two and a half hours I think it is Republican because he's like he's staring down the California government over going to work I think he's just sort of going like this is 
not the way things should be. So anyway, uh, last story I got here. So absolute uh, gold headline followed by a pretty disappointing article, but I just want to bring attention to the gold headline. People of color experience climate grief more deeply than white people. There you go. That's pretty much all that needs to be said. It is an article on Vice. Uh, I read the article trying to find like a great quote to convey the message or convey like maybe it was even funnier. I don't say this lightly. I'm genuinely stupider for having read that article. Like uh, it, it just seemed to be here are five authors I talk to who like to write and they're angry. Like that seemed to be the entire article to me. Well, me and James had a bit of a disagreement about this because I thought it was going to be a completely stupid article that we could make fun of, but it was actually what I called a well-researched, well-written article that was also completely stupid. Uh, And it has ideas that are very influential in the world at the moment and require a serious response, and we shouldn't be putting this in the funny end of the show. So that was what we argued about. But yeah, it was completely stupid. What statistic was used? Like what research was cited? It was like, I just talked to this author and they said they were sad. Well, I can't remember the whole piece off by heart. I can't remember any statistics, yeah. but but getting you know a range. So she had you know psychologists, she had politicians, she had authors uh, from all around the world. I mean, she. I mean, this is. I don't know how interesting this is to people out there, but I felt like she marshaled her evidence well in terms of writing what she what she thought was a good. Uh, piece. People can go out there and uh, read the article and decide for themselves. I still think it's stupid. And I also disagree with the premise because I think oh. the climate protest rallies are the whitest thing in the world. I've said it before. I will say it again. Like genuinely, like what is a wider event? Like a climate change protest or a Reclaim Australia rally? Because like you could, it, it is a razor thin margins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And that this, this, argument that like you know economic growth is not good for ethnic minorities and it's not good for indigenous people and it's not good for people in africa is very influential and it's wrong and it's so dangerous and we give up the opportunity for those groups to have economic advancement on the back of this idea that they think about economic growth differently from europeans you know and it's it's it really gets my goat Okay, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Evan Mulholland and to Richard Impiambardo. Make sure you're checking out Evan's uh, Freedom of Information request. All the documents relating to it available on the IPA website. Richard is in our We Want to Work video, which is uh, all over the IPA social media channels. The Heretic, we talked about it with Gideon extensively last week. Uh, that is now out for IPA members. You can go to ipa.org.au. All the details are there. If you're not an IPA member, it's coming soon, but become an IPA member. You can listen to it now and also you should just be a member anyway. Uh, we'll see you guys on Friday. See you Friday. Bye. <laughs>